Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Listen now for the word of the Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the Holy Spirit, holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and had said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him. Behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, please pray with me. Lord, we thank you this day uh, to be able to gather once again in your house, to worship, to lift up our prayers, and to hear your word. Speak to us. Help us to hear what we need to hear. And in the power of your spirit, help us to obey. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So last week we heard about the surprising baptism by John the baptizer in the River Jordan. In submitting to baptism, the sinless Jesus identified with us in our full humanity and committed himself fully to the will of God. And he fulfilled in that act all righteousness. The heavens were open and the spirit of God descended as a dove and God the Father declared his favor and affirmed the identity of Jesus as his beloved, the unique Son of God. And then as you just heard, Jesus is led by the same Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted or tested by the devil. I find this interesting that the Spirit led Jesus for a time of testing. You know, usually we think of being tempted or being led into the wilderness as a bad thing, as something that the devil does to us or against us. But here it says that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. He's not being tempted because he's departed from the will of God. On the contrary, he's there because the Spirit is the one who is leading him to this place. I, I hope that's an encouragement to you all. If you find yourself in a challenging situation, it may be because it's something that you did that was bad. But it could also be because the Spirit has led you there. 
You know, it occurs to me that we've all sort of been in a kind of wilderness in this season. And so perhaps we can wonder, has the Spirit led us to this place? James 1 tells us, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials or temptations of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If nothing else, the season in the wilderness has forced many of us to think about the hard questions in our lives. When it feels as though so much has been taken away, it's made us think about what's really important, what really matters, what brings us genuine and lasting joy? What relationships really matter to us? What kind of community will we be and become? And maybe we have not been perfected or completed yet, but perhaps this can be a time where we produce this fruit of steadfastness. Now, both Matthew and Luke's gospel record three specific temptations that Jesus faced. But Luke adds that when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him for an opportune time. And the letter of Hebrews in chapter 4 also notes, For we do not have a high priest in talking about Christ who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. And so while we might think of these three temptations in the wilderness as the temptations that Jesus faced, they're just the first of many that Jesus will face throughout his life, just as we do. For example, later in chapter 16, uh, when his disciple Peter insists and tempts Jesus that he shall not suffer, Jesus will have to rebuke him, get behind me, Satan. In Matthew 26, in his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, he's tempted to escape the cup of suffering, and he prays to God, let this cup pass if it's possible. But he resists that temptation as well and submits himself to the will of God. Even on the cross, he's tempted to come down from the cross to prove to his mockers who say, prove yourself, come down and prove that you're the Son of God. He faces that temptation and stays on the cross. Throughout his life, he will be tempted to depart from the will of God. And each time he chooses to be faithful and demonstrates to us that it is possible to be faithful. He proves the word of 1 Corinthians 10. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will, let you be, he will not let you be tempted behind, beyond your ability but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So Jesus will face and overcome every temptation. But these three in particular are given to us at the beginning of his ministry and suggest a kind of importance. And, and I know over the years, and you have probably heard me as well as uh, others and in your own studies, that there are many different ways to think about these uh, temptations and what they mean. Um, and and I, I want to suggest to you today that the temptations are really about who Jesus is. It's not primarily about how to, for us to face temptations. It's not really about 
you know, uh, the kinds of temptations we might face. I think they're really centered on who Jesus is. He's been declared in his baptism the Son of God. And now we're going to find out what that means, what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. So the first temptation is that he's commanded to turn some stones into loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus has been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. He deserves a little bread. It's time to break his fast and have some breakfast, right? What's wrong with turning a few stones into a few dinner rolls? Or maybe if he's you know, Korean, you could turn it into jambokchuk, some abalone porridge after a fast. Um, right? It's, it's, it's okay now. He's done. He's fasted. It's time to eat. Um, I can remember uh, the first time I did a, a three-day fast, I couldn't wait till the 72 hours were over. I, I didn't pray much during those 72 hours. I was thinking mostly about food, especially donuts. And, it's, and as soon as it was 72 hours, like most of my friends, you know, uh, slept that night and got breakfast the next morning, like at midnight, I went to the local bakery and got a donut or maybe two donuts. Like, I couldn't wait to eat. You know, 40 days and 40 nights. Why not eat a little bit? Why not turn a few stones? We, we know he can do this, right? He would take a few loaves of bread and feed thousands. He would turn water into wine. Why not turn a few stones into bread? If you are the king, if you are the Messiah, if you are the Son of God, you don't have to play by the rules. You're not limited. You're not like the rest of us. But Jesus counters with the word from the book of Deuteronomy. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In other words, Jesus is making the case that his obedience to the word of God, that is to fulfill all righteousness, to fully identify in our humanity takes precedence over any needs, legitimate needs that he may have. His refusal to transform stone into bread in obedience to God's will and God's word demonstrates the kind of son of God he's going to be. That's his commitment. The second temptation also gets at Jesus' identity as the son of God. The devil challenges him to jump off from the top of the temple. Hey, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. The Bible says God is going to protect you. God will send his angels so that you do not get hurt. Like the first temptation, it gets at what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God. The son of God should be exceptional. He should be able to avoid the kind of harm that everyone else does from falling down. You should be excused from the ordinary struggles and pains of humanity. But just as Jesus allowed himself to be vulnerable to starvation, he again makes himself as vulnerable to physical harm, to the laws of nature, like any one of us. He will later defy gravity walking on the water. And angels will indeed minister to him afterwards. But his refusal in this moment to test God in this way 
tells us that he is committed to living out his life fully like us, with all of our limitations. And again, he quotes from Deuteronomy. Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, prioritizing the will of God above all else. You know, I think the thing about this particular temptation is that Jesus has now turned to the scriptures twice for guidance on how to resist temptation. And the problem I think here that we see is that the devil is able to quote scripture too. And so I think the problem that we all have is, you know, when it comes to the Bible, everyone has a different interpretation. It used to be simple for a while. For most of church history, whatever the church said, whatever the Pope said, that's it. That's the right interpretation. Everybody has to fall in line. But now, anyone and everyone can have their own interpretation of scriptures. So how do we determine who's right? If Satan tried to derail Jesus from following the will of God using the scriptures, then we can be sure that we will face the same struggles. Now, as a pastor, I can tell you that the question that I ask myself every day is, am I interpreting this passage right? Because I know I will have to answer one day for the things that I'm teaching you right now. I have to do, or I want to do, as Paul exhorts Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God. How do we know? How can we be sure that we are handling rightly the word of God? You know, the other night, my wife and I um, watched a movie called The Eyes of Tammy Faye. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but some of you older folks might remember uh, back in the 80s, uh, Tammy Faye Baker was the wife of Jim Baker, and together they were one of the uh, most um, popular, uh, I don't know what to call it, televangelists, uh, Christian broadcasters. I mean, they built this huge empire. Uh, they built like this uh, a Heritage USA, I think in the Carolinas, uh, you know, was trying to compete with Disney World. I mean, they had a massive, massive following and a massive, massive empire. Um, and it was just, you know, it was just crazy big. And then uh, in the late 80s, uh, a series of scandals uh, led to Jim Baker's uh, resignation and imprisonment and divorce. And, uh, you know, we were watching this movie, my wife and I, and, and the whole thing is just so... It's just so discouraging, so depressing. I mean, it's just like, oh man, it's just, it's just bad. Um, and there's one scene early in the movie uh, where Jim is in, it looks like he's in a, maybe a, a, he's in a Bible college and he's in a class and he's giving a sermon or a devotion or something. And it's, for his text, he chooses 3 John verse two. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as, thou, even as thy soul prospereth. So using that one verse, he argues 
that God does not want us to be poor. And to Tammy Faye's hallelujahs, he says, God will gift the faithful with eternal life, eternal love, and eternal wealth. Hallelujah. When his professor challenges him to remember that Jesus also said, blessed are the poor, Jim Baker dismisses it by saying, doesn't sound very blessed to me. And so begins their journey of a twisted prosperity gospel. But he got it from the scriptures. He's not an exception. It's not an exception. It's far too easy to misread and to misinterpret the scriptures, even with good intentions, even by the entire church. It's not just one, you know, crazy person out there. For example, most of you know, for most of history, nearly every Christian has interpreted Ephesians 6, slaves obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling to defend slavery. Nearly everyone. In the 1930s, Romans chapter 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, was used by the German churches to support Hitler and the Nazis. In this country, texts like 1 Peter 3 continue, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of golden jewelry or the clothing you wear. Passages like this have been used to keep women from wearing lipstick and makeup and earrings and even pants. In many churches today, a passage like 1 Corinthians 14, women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says, continues to be used to keep women out of leadership. I'm telling you, you can, anything you believe, you can find a verse for it. You can. So how can we know that we are not doing what the devil is doing here and misrepresenting scriptures and reading it faithfully. As you know, churches are incredibly divided and we especially now are holding diametrically opposing views and yet we claim to be the followers of the one God and the same Bible. How can we have any assurance that we are interpreting scriptures correctly? How do you know that I'm handling it rightly? Now, I think there is no simple answer, and I cannot give you some uh, guarantee that this, is, this will you know, ensure that it's done correctly. And we could probably spend a year just talking about this but let me just offer what I think is a good starting point in interpreting scripture. And that is, we need to read the scriptures in context. We have to read the scriptures in context. Let me give you, the, uh, let me illustrate it this way. You know, when our kids were little um, and they were going to grade school, my wife and I, uh, one of us, or sometimes both of us, we would drive them to school and we would pick them up every day. We did this for like, I don't know, six, seven years. Every day we would drop them off at school 
And when school's over, we go and pick them up. Now, as far as I can remember, and as far as I know, my wife and I, we did our best to be on time, right? Not so much in the morning, but we, we really wanted to be there to pick them up because we didn't want them to um, be the last one to get picked up, right? Because they hated that. We did that faithfully for, I think, seven years. But there was one day when we were late, like just we completely blew it. Like we, what, for whatever reason, we were just, right? And uh, I think the school had to call us or we had to call them. And, and so we finally get to school. Kids are crazy angry. Like, what's wrong with you guys, right? We, we take them home. Now, taken out of context, if you judge me and my wife as parents on that moment, yes, we're terrible parents. We're unfaithful. We abandon our kids. That's what our kids did. They said, Mom, Dad, what's wrong with you? Right? For months afterwards, that's all they remembered. You're not going to be late again, are you? You're not going to forget us. Right? But in the context of seven years of faithfulness, you can excuse that. That is not who we are. It's rarely, if ever, a good idea to pull one verse out and say that this is what's going on. It's never a good idea to do that. Right? You can't, just like you would not judge a person based on one moment, whether they're lowest or their highest, you can't take just one verse out and say, this is, this is what it means. You, you need it in context, within the passage, within the book, and within all of scriptures. This is one of the reasons I, I, I'm encouraging everyone to read through the Bible every year. Like, at least the New Testament. Go through the whole Bible every year so you see the whole story. So that you can fit these stories within the context of what's going on. So even like this passage about the temptation, you can't just take it out and read it by itself. It has to be seen in the context of what Matthew is doing, right? That's why I'm saying it's not just about temptation. It's about who Jesus is because that's what he's been telling us for the first three chapters. Chapter one with the genealogy. Chapter two with the visit of the Magi. Three with the baptism. This is who Jesus is. This is what it means. The fulfillment, the Messiah, the God who is with us the one who will fulfill all righteousness. This is who Jesus is. And so the temptation is one more piece of that. Who is this person? So, so when you know the whole story, then you can try to make better sense of how any one particular passage or verse fits into the whole. And you can see here, in the exchange with the devil, Jesus understood the larger context of God's word. So that's why he's not going to turn stone into bread or jump off of the temple. Because while those acts may seem like maybe they're okay or desirable or even supported by scripture, he knows that they are not consistent with the whole word of God and the mission and the call that he has in his life. And we can see this most clearly in the third temptation where the devil, again, he takes him to a very high mountain, not just a mountain, but a very high mountain, and he says to him, showing him all the kingdoms of the world, hey, just bow to me 
and all of this is yours. I mean, this is what you want, right? I mean, you came to be the king. You came to, to save the world. Here's, here's a shortcut. If Jesus wants to be the Messiah, that's all he has to do. For a little bit of worship, he can achieve his ultimate goal. But again, because Jesus knows the scriptures, the whole scriptures, he knows, he recognizes that such a temptation would be deviating from the fundamental word and will of God, right? Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. That's not one verse. He's not picking one verse against one other verse. He's taking all of scriptures, which that verse represents, and pitting it against this one temptation. Notice what the devil's trying to do here. He takes Jesus from the wilderness. He takes him to the top of the temple in Jerusalem. And then he takes him to a very high mountain. He, he wants Jesus to just keep going higher and higher and higher. You're not like them. You're the son of God and you can rule from on high. He wants to take him up higher and higher, make his life easier. But for Jesus, the, what it means to be the Son of God, it's not about climbing higher. It's about coming down. Just the opposite. To fulfill all righteousness, he has to come down. The Holy Spirit led Jesus down from heaven and into the incarnation. And Jesus willingly laid down his divinity to become human. He came down into Mary's womb, down into the stable, and then he will travel down into Egypt, and then down into the waters of baptism. And even when he is raised up on the cross, it is so that he can go down into death and into the depths of hell. I mean, it's remarkable, right? None of us lives this way. None of us teach this to our kids. We are all striving to move up in the world, every one of us. We do everything we can to be special so that we don't have to stand in line, right? You know, this past year, I was so thankful that I knew someone in our family who knew someone who knew like a specialist healthcare worker so that I didn't have to wait six months to get an appointment, that I could get, you know, cut in line we do everything we can so that we can live a little easier, so we don't have to stand in line, so that we can live in a better neighborhood with greater security, so that we don't have to go hungry, so that we can have status and power and so on. We do whatever we can to gain an edge, to be just a little more special. I think many people still superstitiously worship God so that they can have this. It's just another way of doing that, right? They think that if they're Christians or whatever religion that they follow, maybe they'll get a little extra protection. Maybe have one more angel watching over them. Increase their chances of not getting sick or having a, a little more fortune or luck in competing in sports or tests or getting a job promotion. For many, God is really not much more than a kind of lucky charm that they're hoping 
will lead to more success. And again, we're not alone. The Jews thought they were special, that they would never be defeated because they're God's people. The temple can't ever be destroyed because that's where God dwells. We can't ever be kicked out of Jerusalem because this is the city of God. They thought they had special protection. But as the children of God, we are not protected extra from the ordinary pains and sufferings of human living. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. The three temptations that Jesus faced was to make himself immune to the dangers of ordinary human living, the fears we all have about going hungry, about physical harm, of being insignificant. As the Son of God, Jesus could have come down in awesome power, commanding angelic armies to destroy his enemies, but instead Jesus chose to live just like us, just like us, to show us what is possible and what it means to be a human being, a child of God. He does not magically or miraculously remove human limitations, but rather within those limitations, Jesus trusts God and shows us the path. Why does he do that? Why doesn't he instead come with overwhelming power to convince everyone who he is, that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, right? It's a question that people continue to ask today. Why doesn't Jesus or God just make himself more obviously and powerfully known, right? If, if God just set this table on fire right now, then I'll believe. Why doesn't God just show himself in some obviously miraculous way to make everyone believe him? I'm pretty sure I've shared with you this uh, illustration at some point, um, but I think it's still the most insightful interpretation of this passage that I've ever uh, run across. Uh, it was made by Dostoevsky in his novel, The Brothers uh, Karamazov. And um, I hope at least a few of you have read that. Um, it's about these brothers. And one of the brothers, his name is Ivan, and he's an atheist, and he's sort of making this case to his younger brother, Alyosha, who is, a, who is sort of Dostoevsky's ideal of the Christian. And so Ivan is trying to kind of corrupt him, kind of um, ruin his faith. And so to do that, he tells him this story, what he calls a poem, uh, which he calls The Grand Inquisitor. The Grand Inquisitor is, is a story within this larger story. And in it, he imagines Jesus Christ returning to the earth incognito at the height of the Inquisition in Spain. And so he is captured, and Jesus is being questioned by this inquisitor. He recognizes who Jesus is, and he rebukes him. He tells Jesus that he failed in the temptations, that he should have turned the stone into bread, that he should have jumped off the temple, that he should have just bowed down and taken all of the kingdoms and their glory. He argues that had Jesus done those things, then the world would be happier and obedient to him. If you had only done those things, 
then all of humanity would thank you and be happier. He goes on to say that, Jesus, you thought too highly of humanity, that you valued their freedom above all else. But the reality is, he says, is that human beings prefer bread and certainty over faith and freedom. That the burden of freedom is too much to bear and only a few people can actually appreciate it and live it out in a good way. Now, I, I thought this was just a really profound insight into this passage. And I don't know if uh, C.S. Lewis was thinking about Dostoevsky, but he made a very similar argument in his, uh, in his book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, where he argues that the, the overwhelming display of power is the one thing that God cannot and will not do. Lewis writes, merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for God useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. Right? Merely to override a human will as his felt presence in any but the faintest, faintest, and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for God useless. God chose to be fully human during his temptation so that our love for him could be freely given. You see the freedom here. Had Jesus done something so spectacular, everyone would have no choice but to believe. It wouldn't even be belief anymore. Belief would be out of the equation. Right? Because our wills would be so overwhelmed by that display. Right? I mean, it's, it's possible for us to imagine God doing something so powerful that none of us could possibly have any sort of disbelief. Right? It, it's possible to imagine that. Where, where, where God would just come in such awesome power. Right? You know, maybe God could just like start rearranging the stars and spelling Jesus with the stars. Like, it's possible where God could do something that is just so overwhelming, we would have absolutely no choice but to believe, right? God could do that. God could provide food just dropping from the ceiling right now so that none of us would ever have to work again. God could take over the government so that the government works. God could wipe out COVID or never bring it to pass. There could be justice and peace at the snap of his fingers. Sounds great. But do you see, if all, any of that were to happen, how it would take away our ability to choose. And without that freedom to choose, there can be no love. Both Dostoevsky and Lewis and Jesus saw that to be so overwhelming, to so overwhelm human will, would not lead to our happiness. It, 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 you know, we'd be more like robots that would just have to you know, respond to whatever was going on. In any relationship, in any genuine relationship, it's love that is freely given that makes that relationship possible or meaningful. Right? 
Love is only possible. Love is only love if it is freely given. God could certainly have taken control over everything and make us do whatever he wanted. And that's the argument that the Grand Inquisitor makes. Humanity would be happier, but it's not true. Without choice, without the freedom to love, without relationships, we wouldn't even know what happiness is. Now, I know sometimes uh, we all wish God could be a little more visible, that our faith could be a little more strengthened in a little more obvious sort of way. And I think that's fine. I think that's the, the yearning of our hearts. But I hope you also recognize that that very struggle is what makes your faith worthwhile. It's the choice to believe, just like the choice that you have to love, that makes life meaningful, even in the wilderness. And, and this is why the Christian faith is just so radically different. Why the incarnation is such a scandal. God in Jesus Christ becomes one of us, susceptible to every pain and suffering that you and I have. Jesus is not pretending to be a human being. He makes real choices. He really hungers. He really cries. He gets angry and frustrated, and he will suffer and die like all of us. And yet, in the midst of that reality, in the midst of that human reality, he will continue to trust God and God's word. Jesus will choose voluntarily deprivation over comfort, vulnerability over rescue, and obscurity over honor. He shows us that it is possible to trust God's word even when life is incredibly hard and unfair. Only the Son of God could have done that, right? By doing the things, by not doing the things that only the Son of God could do, he proves himself to be the true Son of God. To him be the glory and honor now and forever. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we are thankful for your word and to learn about your temptations and that against such great temptation, you continue to follow God's will, that you chose the way of the cross. Help us, God to be your children as well, to be obedient to your word, your whole word, and in so doing prove ourselves your children. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.